And we're going to go to the book of Luke chapter 2. Now, if you need a Bible, our ushers carry around blue Bibles. We know that blue is God's favorite color. Why? It's the color of the sky, the color of my eyes, and the color of water. (laughs) Yep, now listen. Some of us are rowdy today, and some of us are not. If you are new to our community, the regular guy will be back next week. I'm just filling in. Uh, Luke chapter 2. We believe that Jesus wants to save Christmas. We believe every now and again that, that the, the kind of sanitized consumeristic story that the culture tells, does, it bears very little resemblance to what actually happened and what this whole thing's about. And so we've been in the middle of a season uh, that is called Advent. Advent is just a fancy word that means preparing or arrival, and it's the idea that we actually, it, the momentum of our culture would take us just kind of blindly into a celebration like Christmas. We want to go intentionally. We want to go not having, not having spent the whole month going, okay, how much money did we spend, and where did all the time go? We'd actually like it to mean something, but we've got to work at it. The very familiarity of the stories actually works against us, right? Because you've heard all these before. And so this morning, what we want to do, we want to look at the, we've looked at different themes of the Christmas story. These are themes of Advent, whether it's hope, whether it's peace, joy, next week's love. We want to start in Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, I don't know about you, but I like asking questions. Whenever I think of shepherds, I think of 35-year-old single men in bathrobes. Is that, anybody else kind of have that image. I mean, not a real savory profession, even though shepherding was kind of like one of God's major pictures of himself in the Old Testament. I always ask the question, well, why do we, why do we mention shepherds, and why are these shepherds special enough to receive the announcement that they receive? And as it turns out, God happens to be smart, and there's a reason why details like this are mentioned. So we're going to ask the question, Who are the shepherds and why were they near Bethlehem? Go, if you would, to Genesis chapter 35. And we're off to the hinterlands of Genesis. Now, Genesis 35, we'll go to verse 19. Who are the shepherds? Why were they there? It's not just coincidence. There's actually a, a deeper story that's going on. Genesis 35, verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel, now Israel here is literally the man Jacob and his sons. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. Now, this is one of those verses that is so chock full of spiritual truth and practical application. It just jumps right out of the page. There actually is something that's going on here. There's Bethlehem, obviously, is where Jesus is born. But there is a place near there, there excuse me, called Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder, the phrase means herd tower. And it was a platform that you would build up off the ground where shepherds could keep watch of large flocks. And Migdal Eder, we know from other Jewish sources, was the place where the lambs that they would use for Passover were raised and kept to be sacrificed. Now, if you don't know the significance of Passover lambs, go, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. 
So there's a place near Bethlehem called Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder was a place where lambs, large herds, flocks, I guess flocks is the better term, large flocks of lambs would be kept because you could actually kind of stand up over them and, and look out and protect them. But these lambs were special lambs. Exodus chapter 12. Now you all know that Charlton Heston delivers the people of Israel out of slavery, right? In the movie The Ten Commandments, everyone's seen this. Some of the young folks are going, does that have anything to do with Gorbachev, who you were talking about earlier? <laughs> now listen, who here is under the age of 25, Rajan? Okay. Do you understand how culturally impoverished you are? <laughs> you missed the 80s. Which greatest music decade in the history of the world? Culturally, I mean, just, just I, I want you to know, you boast in your youth. I look at you and I see a vacuum of culture. Tonight, when you go home, YouTube Duran Duran and just spend an hour watching their videos and then you will taste a little bit of the glory. So Charlton Heston. So, so Israel, again, the, next, the, the real guy's coming next week. Israel is in slavery to Egypt. God calls Moses as a deliverer. Moses, uh, in partnership with Aaron and authorized by God, they, they perform ten great signs or plagues. And these plagues, interestingly enough, were not random. So when you read about locusts and gnats and blood and frogs, you're just going, okay, well, these are interesting. But actually, each one of those plagues targeted a specific Egyptian deity. So they had an Egyptian god that, that was symbolized by a gnat. And so all of a sudden when Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, when Yahweh is commanding the gnats to come and to go, that's like, that's like a subversive attack against the deities of Egypt. Now, the sun god Ra was the preeminent deity. He was, he was the firstborn of the gods. And so the last plague that God leveled against Egypt was that he said, I will come and take the firstborn of all of Egypt, except for those in faith who take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, take the blood, anoint door, the doorposts of their home. Literally, the, that angel would pass over their homes. And that that would finally be the thing where Pharaoh goes, okay, you guys can really leave. I'm, I'm tired of screwing around with this. That event became known as Passover, and it was to be commemorated every year. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in Egypt, this month, the month of Passover, the month where Passover happens, excuse me, the month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, you're to orient your entire calendar around this event. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Jump down to verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. So here's the idea. Every single household in Israel would celebrate this. How many lambs would you need? Lots. Migdal Eder 
was the place where those flocks were raised. So who were the shepherds and why were they nearby? Here's the idea. The the very shepherds in charge of watching over and selecting Passover lambs were the shepherds who received the announcement that Jesus was to be born. The significance of that is this. Jesus comes into Jerusalem the very day when the Passover lambs were chosen. He is crucified and gives up his spirit at the very moment when the Passover lambs were killed. Paul looks at Jesus and his sacrifice and calls him our Passover lamb. The idea was all of this foreshadowed what Jesus would do for everybody. So it is no coincidence whatsoever that the very shepherds in charge with watching and keeping Passover lambs were the shepherds who were the first to receive the news Messiah had been born. Are you with me? God happens to be pretty smart. Go back to Luke chapter 2. Now notice the message given to these shepherds. Luke chapter 2, we'll go uh, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Now, anybody remember touched by an angel in the 90s? Okay? Now, it was an awful show for many reasons, but one of them was that the angels were very soft and very gentle, and they had this nice glow about them. No one would have been terrified by these angels. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, they're terrified. And literally, at angel training school, they are taught, the first thing you have to say when you show up on earth is don't be afraid. Because literally, everyone, everyone's horrified when you see an angel in real life. So, the angel said to them, what? Do not be afraid. That's what you got to say. I bring you good news that will cause great joy... For all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And remember, last week we talked about how these words, some of these words and concepts were taken straight from Roman propaganda. Right? These were words that Caesar used. He had good news. He was a Savior. He would bring peace. He was a Lord. And so now these same words are being applied to an infant in a manger. So there's two kings and two kingdoms already. But notice the announcement is one of Great joy. Now, you are dying to know that the Greek word for great is the word megas. The word from whence we get mega. Mega lotto. Mega jackpot. Mega amplifies whatever it's referring to, right? So mega means extra, bonus. So mega joy is like joy of the highest caliber. Like extra joy, mega joy. So this is good news of mega joy. You will be fascinated to know the Greek word for joy is the word kara. The word kara is the root of two other very well-known New Testament words. Charis, which is grace. And if you put a little EU in front of charis, you get Eucharist, which is thanksgiving. So thanksgiving, grace, and joy all share a common word together. Joy in the scriptures is much different than our concept of happiness. Happiness is something that comes and goes. It is purely circumstantial. Some days I feel happy, other days I feel sad. My kids and I around the dinner table will do thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs medium about our day. Thumbs up was a good thing, thumbs down was a bad thing, thumbs medium, they invented that one, I'm not sure what that one is. Thumbs medium is, this was just a, just a thing. Not good or bad. 
But that is the concept we have of happiness, right? If I just get this raise, if she says yes, if this diagnosis is negative, happiness is totally contingent on circumstance. Joy, biblically, is not. It is a gift that is received. Joy is deeper than happiness, more permanent, and can be found in the strangest of places. Mondo, fire up the tech slides. I don't want to look at that head. (laughs) The gospel, says one scholar, remains a scandal because it announces joy, right? When everything's falling apart. Just when today's experts offer sober assessments of the current situation. And in their euphoric moments can only say that they remain cautiously optimistic. The gospel's tone is utterly foreign to this. This is good news of mega joy. And and would you agree with me that joy is one of the rarest commodities in our world today? Even among followers of this Jesus. Next slide. I don't want to see the head. Joy is not to be confused with happiness. The root of happiness is hap. In case you were wondering. Meaning chance, as in happenstance or haphazard. Happiness depends on things going our way, whereas joy is based on the knowledge of the presence of God with us at all times from the very beginning. Joy is something we can celebrate even when things are not going our way, even in the midst of grief and sadness. The only condition for joy is the presence of God. Joy happens when God is present and people know it, which means it can erupt in a depressed economy in the middle of a war in an intensive care waiting room. Go, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. See, joy is different than happiness because joy can be found in the most unexpected places. Happiness, happiness cannot exist without suffering, but joy can. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you don't know where 1 Thessalonians is, it's right before. That's funny. Every time. Every time. That is funny. If you're new to our community, the regular guy will be here next week. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 6. Now notice this. Paul writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, very rarely do we even consider the possibility that severe suffering and joy can fit in the same sentence, let alone the same life. Very rarely do we consider the idea that sorrow and joy actually can go together. And and what I mean is this. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, was a man well acquainted with grief. And yet, I would argue, was the most joyful man ever to walk the face of the planet. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. So joy and sorrow aren't mutually exclusive. And if you've ever been around, or if you've been somebody who suffered, you realize that what suffering does is it actually hollows you out. And it makes room for the lowest, most painful emotion, but it also makes room for the highest, most pleasant emotions. You literally, what I've discovered in my own life, is the more you suffer, and if you, if you suffer well, you grieve well, the lows are lower 
But the highs are higher. Anyone experience this? The last four years, uh, and some of you already know this, forgive the repetition, I wish I had a different story that involved being a Jedi Knight, but this is the only story I have. So, the last 40 years, so September of 07, uh, my dad dies. Huge deal. September of 08, on the one year anniversary of my dad's death, we find out our third child has Down syndrome. And I wish we were so godly and mature that we were really excited. We were not. September of 09, my stepfather uh, falls downstairs, breaks his neck. Uh, I fly back to watch him die. And then August of 10, uh, my wife's dad dies of cancer. Now, I know in the grand scheme of things, there are, a lot, there are a lot worse seasons. I know that. But for us, that's as, that's as bad as it's been for us. And we became people, we wouldn't choose this, but we became people who are well acquainted with grief. And all the adjustments that losing parents and seeing them die differently and then receiving a, a child with special needs... And I got to tell you, what that's done in us is borne out by what the scriptures say. That joy is different than happiness. Joy can be found in the most unexpected places. We've been hollowed out by grief, and the lows are certainly lower than we'd ever want to experience, but the highs have been higher. And our little boy, Seth, who's turning three the day after Christmas, he has led the way in our understanding the relationship between sorrow and joy. Just this week, I was reading an IEP. It is what the school district, they test your child and let you know where your child falls in the, like, compared to other children to determine whether or not you are worthy of special services. Seth, in some areas, was in the first percentile, meaning 99% of kids perform better at whatever it was than him. Now, are we, are we happy to hear that? Your kid is, there's no category lower than where your kid's at. That happy? Not at all. So we grieve. Anytime he's around somebody his age and you see what he should be doing, we grieve. And yet, Mondo, fire up the video. WC Dance, can you say Hannah? Can you say Nathan? Can you say Seth? Can you say, can you say Daddy? And he just finds straws. There's no music. It's just two straws. They're just two straws. We're just dancing with straws. There's no, just an outburst. Can you say Daddy? Can you say love you? Oh. Can you say love you? Next one, Mondo. Now, this is, this is the Ting Tings, That's Not My Name. <laughs> Happens to be his favorite song. Now, we're going to watch this until he shakes his bottom. I don't know whose awful voice that is. I think that's my little girl who is convinced she can sing. Because we tell her, honey, you have a great voice. Someday we'll have to give her the bad news. Okay, but here's Saffron. Now, he's just kind of getting the pipes warmed up. And then he busts out. Wow. Little, it was a little Matrix moment right there. Now this is what we do. We have dance parties at our house. That's right. That's right. 
That's right. This could be straight from YouTube. Oh, nice. Now watch this. Watch this. Hold on. A little pivot. There it is. There it is. Just out of nowhere. All right, Mondo. I think the people have had enough. Now, so what have we learned with our little guy? We have learned that right in the middle of sorrow and grief, you can find the most exquisite joy. Because the people who most experience joy are the people who recognize that every single moment is a gift. Now, I know that sounds so cheesy and so hallmark, but think about it. See, nobody, see, for our little guy, our little guy, if you're going to be ranked that low, what that teaches us to do, we celebrate everything. We celebrate things every other set of parents takes for granted. Every little word that kid says, we celebrate. I remember the first time he clapped. Now, if you notice, he's got these short little arms, these T-Rex arms. We call them our little T-Rex. And, and the first time, it was, it's a developmental step for him to clap. And I remember, literally, it was two Christmases ago. It was almost one. He clapped. Now, my other two kids clapped. I don't remember the first time they did it. When he did, we went berserk. And in fact, we scared him. He started crying <laughs> because we were jumping up and down. We did not positively reinforce the behavior. But <laughs> what has Seth taught us to do? To celebrate everything. Who are the people who know joy most? The people who have learned a life of prosperity and health, we're not entitled to that. A life of just beautifully dressed up kids, we're not entitled to that. We receive everything. Despite the illusion we have of control over our lives, we receive everything as a gift, everything as grace, and everything can be an excuse for celebration. But see, it takes us a while to learn that. you got to get beat up a while. Before you realize, oh, oh, so the, the real world won't bend itself to my desires. Oh, that's a hard lesson to learn. But when you learn it, and if you learn it well, what comes instead, just like Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, in the midst of suffering, you received our message with joy. It is possible to live this way outside of being dependent upon circumstance. In fact, the, the, the priest who wrote The Seven Deadly Sins, I'm not even making this up, had an eighth one originally. And the eighth one was called gloom. And the idea was, it is inconsistent to be a follower of Jesus and to not be joyful. Because the world, I mean, how, how great is the news? I mean, it's horrible. And it just keeps getting worse. And so the natural response of the people of God is just to circle the wagons ourselves. we got to take care of our own. we got to plan for the future. we got to make, make sure things are okay. And to some degree, okay. Some of that's not bad, of course. But when did we cease being astonished by our God? Exactly. See, that little critter's astonished by something right now. Now, go, if you would, back to the book of Luke. How old were the shepherds? Were they 35-year-old men? Nah. 
from what we know, shepherds were kids. Now, there might be an older shepherd or two kind of overseeing the whole operation, but think about King David, right? In the Old Testament, before he was king, what was he? He was a shepherd, and he was the youngest of the family. Like, on the list of chores, shepherding, like, after all the other kids got to pick, shepherding was the one left over, and young kids did this. Now, not just alone, but when we think of shepherds, we think of like really old dudes. And even today in some Bedouin cultures, it's kids that do this. So the question becomes, why these shepherds? Because, I mean, here's the, here's the deal. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a whole bunch of angels show up. And they sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed. Why did God choose these shepherds? Number one. Because it was good news for all the people. And shepherds were not highly regarded in Jewish society. Number two, these were the same shepherds that were overseeing the flocks of the Passover lamb. But number three, maybe it was because children would be the most fitting messengers of good news of great joy. Maybe. Do you think in Greek, it's so funny when it says they hurried off. In Greek, it's not a casual hurrying. It means they abandoned the flocks and they sprinted the mile to Bethlehem. And do you think they did this quietly? Do you think it was a nice orderly procession? No. How did they spread the word about the announcement? They woke Bethlehem up. See, you, I don't know what your... It wasn't silent night that first night. All right? Odds are... Some older dudes and a bunch of kids screaming through Jerusalem or through Bethlehem, telling people of what they just seen. Why did God appear to these shepherds? Because it was good news for everybody. They were the shepherds in charge of Passover lambs, but maybe they were the most fitting ambassadors. Why is it, parents? Why do you still give your children gifts? They don't need them. In virtue of living with you, there they are among the wealthiest of anybody in the world. Why do you give them gifts? Because the looks on their faces. Because there is that moment, and, and, and YouTube, you know, a bunch of videos will come up after Christmas of kids who get something they want and they go berserk, right? And we watch that stuff because joy, one of the other ways joy is different than happiness is joy is communal. Happiness is individual. Joy is communal, meaning anytime you experience joy, you want to share it. Did you see that? I mean, isn't that true? You see something that just brings you delight and you immediately want to bring people into it. So part of the reason why parents give their children things their children do not need is because kids haven't learned how to hide yet. See, Seth, the reason why Seth is such a good guide to joy is because Seth is humanity stripped of pretense. He doesn't know how to hide. He'll never learn. His greatest joy is to be included. His greatest pain is to be excluded. Isn't that the human, the essence of the human soul? And so, he dances when straws are near. 
He delights. And, and, and children do. And one of the reasons why Jesus commended children as examples of faith is because of their unwavering trust, yes, but also their unfiltered and uninhibited processing of emotion. In the Bible, it is okay to be mad at God. And it is okay to grieve. And it is okay to lament. And it is perfectly okay to celebrate. And the problem is God's people have ceased being astonished by God. Why is it that every year I feel this great pressure to have to somehow dress up the Christmas story? Because it's not powerful enough. Oh yeah, the story of light coming into the world isn't powerful enough. Oh, okay, Emmanuel, yeah, God with us. Yeah, I got that. I mean, why? What happened to us? What happened? When did we get so entitled that we've lost any sense of astonishment at this? Why do we have to dress it up? Why is Jesus no longer the reward of Jesus? You've got to have health and wealth too. And why is the Christmas story not compelling enough? We've got to dress it up with all these cultural artifacts. See, I'm absolutely convinced that the problem lies with us. We've ceased any sense of discovery or wonder or awe, and we literally sleepwalk through our lives. Who would you have had to follow to find Jesus the first Christmas? Shepherds. Kids. Unclean. Not highly trustworthy in Jewish society. You'd had to follow them. So who would you have to follow today to find joy? Well, the people well acquainted with sorrow. I mean, have you ever been to a third world country and been staggered at the fact that they have nothing yet possess everything? And then you come here and you wonder, why is it we have everything and yet we have nothing? Why is it the most affluent race that has ever, not race, the most affluent people that has ever lived on the face of the earth is the most miserable? Why is that? And then all of a sudden it dawns. We're asleep. We've been lulled into thinking that somehow this is what we need. When joy is all around us. See, I want to be the kind of guy that celebrates things that everyone takes for granted. I want to be astonished that food, of all the ways that God could have fed us, food tastes really good except for broccoli. I want to be astonished that God, I mean, I, my eight-year-old son is fascinated by bodily noises. Shocking. And, and my son just asked me, God, or he didn't ask, he didn't say God when he asked me. Although, I know you couldn't blame him for that mistake. He said, Dad. Why did God make those stinky? <laughs> and I don't know the answer of all the ways, but I mean, think about how much laughter. Well, all the wives are going, no, 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 it's awful. But I mean, like through his eyes, there's just this, what? This is amazing, right? I mean, just this whole thing. And, and I want us, I want me, to be the kind of person that just is astonished still. I want to be capable. I don't want to be so cynical. I don't want to be so jaded. I, want to be so, I do not want to be so skeptical that I cease being astonished by our God. 
Because he's going to show up. If the Christmas story teaches us anything, it is that he will never be found where you expect him. And he will always be found where you don't. Nobody was going to look for him in a freaking manger. (laughs) Send all emails to T. Keller. (laughs) Marinerschurch.org. No one was going to look for him there, and certainly no one's going to trust some shepherds to be the sources and guides. But that's exactly what our Jesus does. And so, brothers and sisters, could we please begin to expect the unexpected? Could we please wake up just for a moment? Our eyes are too small, our hearts are too shallow, our souls are too thin to appreciate the glory that sits all around us, that our God has really given every breath, every blood vessel, every ounce of like synapse activity. That's all grace. We deserve not a bit of it. And the people who understand this taste joy even in the middle of pain and sorrow. My little boy, we don't, he's not entitled. We've given up the idea of normal. We want to beat that idea up. He's just Seth. He's not a percentile. He's Seth. You're not a cancer patient. You're not a divorcee. You are bigger than that. And the story's bigger than that. So wake up. It's all around us. Shut off your televisions and your cell phones and learn to be thankful. And learn to trust the most unexpected guides to show you where this Jesus is to be found. Shepherds back then, kids with Down syndrome today, who might he use with you? Because he's never found among the tinselly and the polished and the beautiful. You gotta go find him there. You're gonna find him in the places that you never expect. And so I just wonder if every now and again we just need to be reminded. It's all around us. Wake up. Wake up. So if you would, would you stand for a moment? I want us just to pray a little bit. Would you close your eyes? Now, you could tell by my physique that yoga and I have never had an acquaintance. But I want you to close your eyes and take a deep breath in. Hold it and take a deep breath out. Now, do you get to do a lot of that in the next couple of weeks? No. So could we take just a moment of silence? And would you literally ask the Lord Jesus to wake you up? In the Bible, the psalmist asked for joy. So if ask for joy, it's a gift. Confess your entitlements. Humble yourselves. In gratitude. But just take a moment and say, God, wake me up. Wake me up. I want to be astonished.
So Father, you say one of the evidences that your Holy Spirit is at work is that there's joy. And, uh, and Lord, I, um, I would imagine there are quite a few of us uh, this morning who um, are well acquainted with grief. And my prayer is that just as an act of your grace, you might open our eyes to see beyond our circumstances. And that's so cliched, Lord, but oh, that we yearn for it. That we might see beyond our circumstances to the bigger story being written. And that, God, you would grace us and allow us to taste afresh the reality all of this is a gift that you would wake us up and that you would allow us to find you, Lord Jesus, in the most unexpected places. We just confess all the ways we box you in, all the ways we've determined you'll, you'll move in this way but not in this way. Lord, would you surprise us? Lord, would you unnumb us so that when joy comes, we might recognize it for what it is? And so we just, we sing just these words of longing because we find ourselves just as Israel of old in exile still, still hungering for more than what we can do for ourselves, still yearning for a world that makes sense of this one. Lord, keep us from celebrating too little.